Hello, happy uh, gosh, what 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 happy, month? It's happy year. October. Happy Indigenous Peoples Day if you're ah, from yeah. the US. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a happy Thanksgiving if you're in Canada. Oh, I think is that it's right? Thanksgiving. Can- is it really? I think it's Canadian Turkey Day. I'm not sure though. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. There we go. No idea. Okay. Yeah, it's been. I mean, as ever and as always, it's always been busy. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. No uh, surprise. I know, right? I mean, I'm sure on your end, there's also been a lot going on. Yeah, I mean, it's at work. This is a quieter period. In school, it's supposed to be picking up. This is what I hear from my classmates who have already finished this week's homework. (laughs) (laughs) I have not. Okay, so so some things don't change. I think a lot of it is kind of denial, right? Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, I think I need to adjust my audio a little bit because either I'm speaking too loud or I'm too close to the mic. One second. Okay, I think I'm peaking as well by a fair bit. But in any case, well, I mean, in similar school-related news, this week was the first week this semester where I have woken up at 8 a.m. in the morning, realized that an assignment due at 9.30, so I rushed something out in one hour. I mean, for me, this is not possible. Because, I mean, the class that I'm taking right now is Intro to Computer Systems, which has a reputation as being one of the hardest core classes. And I mean, to be specific, there are six core classes in my program and algorithms is unambiguously and unanimously considered the hardest. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And then Intro to Computer Systems is considered to be the second hardest, but hard in difficult ways, right? I think... The I guess the problem that most people have with algorithms is that the class is not necessarily... I think a lot of people don't agree with the way that it's structured, right? Or graded. With one point of contention being that there is a... Depending on who's teaching the class, the course is very aggressively curved. And sometimes in the exam, an A might be 60%. Which is just... It sucks, right? Like if you're a student, it sucks for a lot of reasons. One is, firstly, and as is the case in any class that's curved, even when it's to curve a grade up, right? You don't know what target you're aiming for, For right? That's one problem. The second problem is that it's just very demoralizing because in terms of feedback, there is a mismatch between seeing that, okay, I got 40% of this thing wrong yeah. Right? But this is also an A. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you have this cognitive dissonance of I'm doing well or I'm not doing well. Well, right, right. It's the absolute versus the relative kind of grading thing, which, you know, I also get because I'm teaching now, right? So. Right. No, but I mean, it's a legitimate question of like, what is the learning outcome? I mean, it's such a corny yes. thing. But <laughs> also, it's, it's such a corny thing to hear as a student. But as a teacher, it's really important because... yes. If my whole class, you know, the best student in my class is only getting 60% of the content that I'm teaching, then maybe I'm not effective as a teacher? It could be a lot of things, right? It's, you're not effective as a teacher. That's one possibility. Another possibility is your class is pitched too high, right? And that's just the practical thing of, okay, does this course really need to be two courses that are taken one after sequentially? That's one possibility. The other possibility is, if the unanimous kind of opinion is that the current students who are getting like A's and B pluses, like it is sufficient for them to move forward, then maybe the remaining 40% that people are consistently just blanking out on, 
maybe that just should not be tested because it does not seem to have an impact on their future learning opportunities. Like if you need a differentiator, then again, this comes back to breaking it into two classes and making it sequential, right? If you are arguing that it has to be there because if you wanted to specialize in a particular sub-discipline, this is stuff that you need to have experience working with. Fine, break it off into like an advanced algorithms class. But that's a separate issue. I haven't taken this class. Everything I've, I'm hearing is just from what I've heard from people who have. But yeah. I mean, this is, then becomes an issue of a you know, syllabus review, right? You know, <laughs> how often is a professor obliged to review the syllabus and then to figure out? To be fair, it's happening now <laughs> because it's happening now, I think, just because there have been so many complaints. Mm, so the about dean it. has had to step in or something? I mean, I don't know what the situation is behind the scenes. It is sufficiently contentious that <laughs> algorithms is not being taught for the next two semesters. Right. Which okay. can you imagine in a CS program? <laughs> Where algorithms is not taught for two <laughs> Yeah. So algorithms is not being taught for the next two semesters. They're figuring it out. And in the meantime, for students for whom like, this is the one class that they are short before they need to graduate or something. Yeah. Yeah. Then you're fucked, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. then becomes a question there of There is a... I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there is like a case out there somewhere of a student who this is like the one class that they have left and they were planning to graduate in the <laughs> spring and now they're screwed. It's possible, I guess. I mean, in academia, there will always be edge cases. So Yeah. But the other option that was offered, which I actually think very few people are taking, is that for students who are intent on data science or machine learning, they have the option to replace it with linear algebra. Which is, I mean, you have to be, I guess, really committed to, I am in this program only for machine learning. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh right? boy. Yeah, I think like if you have any ambition of a software engineering position or anything related to software engineering, you, you can't really not do algorithms. Yeah, you really do need algorithms. Anyway, so the class that I'm doing that's killing me right now, and I'm only doing one class this semester, I don't think it's as difficult as algorithms. I think this class is just notorious and I've been told by people not to do this class because it is a lot of work. We meet three times a week. So two times, one hour, 15 minute lectures, Tuesday and Wednesday, Tuesday and Thursday. And then Wednesday has a two hour lab. It's a very full on class. And then there's a reading report due every week and there's a group project, like a big mega group project. So it's basically a ton of work. And it's on stable isotopes, which is... The class is on stable isotopes? Yes, it's on stable wow. isotopes. Okay. Which are, well, I mean, not stable isotopes alone, but it's how stable isotopes are used or can be used in ecology to understand the environment, which is, I think, a really cool concept. This is something that I've heard a lot about sort of in passing. You know, you walk through the halls of ecology and academia and you hear people going, oh, you know, I use stable isotopes it's to... It's a really strange this, you know, like, metaphor that... Right. Like, the halls Walking of through the halls of ecology. No, but okay. you, know, you dig through the literature and then once in a while you come across this method called stable isotopes and you're like, what the fuck is a stable isotope? Right? And how is it useful in the first place? Are you even, how much of stable isotopes do you remember from like secondary what school I chemistry? What I remember of it is that basically what identifies in an atom, right, as a particle, as being of a particular element is I think the number of... I'm going to screw this up. Okay, so you have 
neutrons, protons, right? Yes, and Because I keep thinking, in my head, I keep thinking positrons, but I'm like, no. <laughs> okay, well, you're no. from a different universe altogether. That's, okay. that's different, yeah. Yes, protons, neutrons, matter. and electrons. And the thing that determines what a element is, is the number of protons. Yes, correct. Right? And a stable isotope is a variant where the number of, I want to say neutrons varies. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, number of neutrons varying is just an isotope. But what sort of separates ah, a okay. stable isotope from a radioisotope is whether or not the element de- the isotope decays and therefore, you know, emits radiation. So, in nature, obviously, you know, we are made of actually a very surprisingly small number of elements. We're mostly carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, calcium, I mean, nitrogen. Like, That's yeah, it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And very interestingly, carbon has two stable isotopes, right? It has three, well, there are three or four isotopes of carbon, but only two are stable and non-radioactive. That's carbon-12 and carbon-13. Carbon-12, carbon-13, yes. Carbon-14 is uh, radioactive. Yes, hence we use radiocarbon dating. Yes, correct. Nitrogen has two stable isotopes. There is nitrogen-14, which is the common one, and then nitrogen-15, which is the heavy one, right? Oxygen has three stable isotopes. Oxygen... 16, which is the common light isotope. Oxygen 17, which is weird and hard to find. And then oxygen 18, which is the heaviest stable isotope. And then hydrogen, the most basic one, protium and deuterium, right? Yeah, and then tritium is... Tritium, tritium is, is radioactive. radioactive. Yeah. Yes. So this is really, really interesting because just purely by statistical rules, heavier isotopes are rarer. Right. Okay. It makes sense, right? I mean, I guess it does. My chemistry is not fantastic, so... Fair. In nature, heavy isotopes are slightly rarer. But because these isotopes have higher mass, because they have one or two extra neutrons, it also affects their physics, right? The way they interact with other atoms and therefore other molecules. So, for example, I think this is super cool. When it rains, right? Rain is the result of water evaporating from the sea, forming a cloud, and then that water raining out of the cloud, right? When you have ocean water and you have evaporation, which isotope evaporates first, the lighter one or the heavier one? I would assume the lighter. Yes, because it has weaker van der Waals forces of attraction, less mass. Right. Right? Makes sense, yes. So that's what we call fractionation. Already you're creating a ratio difference between the light and the heavy isotope in ocean water relative to atmospheric clouds, which is already freaking cool, right? And water, being H2O, can have, I think, four different isotopologues. Okay. Four, maybe more, right? Because you have two stable isotopes of hydrogen hydrogen and and then two stable isotopes of oxygen or three, but we ignore oxygen-17 most of the time, right? And then when it rains out, right, which isotope rains out first? I would assume the heaviest. Yes, because they form stronger bonds. And so they will rain out first, right? So yeah, heavy isotopes rain out first. And as the cloud drifts further inland, the more it rains out its water, the lighter the water fraction becomes. And so it creates a gradient of hydrogen and oxygen isotopes, which are strongly correlated with each other across landscape. And this water gets taken out by plants. And so the hydrogen you see and the oxygen you see in plant tissues follows to some extent, the isotopic signature of the rain. 
Okay, so firstly, what the heck? Right? And Holy secondly, shit. what is how obvious or how detectable is this effect? Like how much work do you have to put into to find to make discoveries based on this? No, I mean that's a fantastic question. So there is, I think, at least at continental scales, there is enough variation that it's powerful enough to give you spatial discrimination, right? So in the US, in Europe, where you have these big land masses, you get pretty good discrimination. Where this method seems to fall flat is in the tropics. Surprise, okay. I know, right? Because, well, there's not a lot of topography going on in the lowland tropics, hence lowland tropics. And Southeast Asia, for example, is mostly islands. And there's just not enough space to see a difference. Well, I mean, it is, as with all things sort of ecological about Southeast Asia, it is probably also a function of just lack of research. <laughs> well, yeah, fair. Right? Because, you know, if you know what the fine-scale processes are that govern how isotopes are variably deposited in the landscape, and our isotopes are differentially used up by organisms, you could potentially find use cases for stable isotopes in, in the lowland tropics. But it requires a lot more work and a lot more investment into sort of inferring the correction factors you need to have in place, right? So that's just water, right? What about carbon dioxide, right? Again, two elements with stable isotopes. And carbon dioxide is primarily used in photosynthesis. So, then carbon dioxide diffuses into the plant via the stomata, which is like primary school stuff. Right, when the leaves... Which I have forgotten if you're wondering, but okay. yes, go ahead. Leaves have these pores called stomata that open and close, right? And they let air in to the, the space inside the leaf and that's where the leaf gets its carbon dioxide from. It's where it absorbs the carbon dioxide, okay? Now, again, going back to the fundamental sort of biophysical process, um, which... Isotopes get absorbed first. I mean, I would guess, these are purely guesses, right? They are intuitive guesses, like layman's imaginary mental model kind of guesses. I would guess the lighter ones get absorbed first. If I'm not wrong, yes. I, again, I may have lot forgot something. But basically, there is a fractionation going on that one isotope is preferentially absorbed by the leaf over the other. And therefore, you actually see a difference in carbon isotope ratio of carbon-12 to carbon-13 within plants. And because there's more than one type of photosynthesis, you can actually tell the difference between C3 and C4 plants. C3 and C4 meaning the different types of photosynthesis, the two main classes of photosynthesis. I think what we learn in school, which I mean, you may not have done because it's like JC Biology. No, I've definitely done It's mostly, not. if I'm not wrong, C3 Photosynthesis, like classic photosynthesis. But grasses are C4 plants. So the process by which you generate carbohydrates from atmospheric carbon dioxide is slightly different. And because of this difference in the biochemical process, the incorporation of heavy to light carbon isotopes differs as well. And you can actually see the difference quite significantly in the ratio measurements. So, I mean, this is like, this was something that you know, I had some sort of background knowledge of for a while. But it's like, when you learn about it, you realize, holy shit, it's really powerful. <laughs> I mean, and I've already just talked about water, right? Fundamentally, which occurs as a result of precipitation. Carbon dioxide because of photosynthesis. 
And then there's nitrogen, which is the result of the way we destroy proteins in our body. When we deaminate proteins, right, and amino acids, we lose light nitrogen faster. And so within biological systems, we tend to preferentially store heavier nitrogen. Interesting. Okay. And if you look at it in, from the perspective of a food web, the primary consumers of the herbivores to the apex predator, you will see increasing heavy Amounts nitrogen heavy ratios nitrogen, yeah. as you go up the food chain. Which yeah. is, again, it's like, holy shit, this is you know fundamental ecological principles that can be detected using Biochemistry. Elements. Yeah, yeah, essentially, not even biochemistry, just chemistry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? We're not yeah. even using any fancy... I mean, the fancy equipment we're using are spectrometers, mass spectrometers, which was the product of the nuclear revolution, by and large. I mean, I think spectrometry, I'm not sure exactly about the details, right? But I'm pretty sure spectrometry... Well, okay, depending uh, on your, your timeline. Ah, Okay. Right, photospectrometry came out of, I mean, I'm guessing Newton probably when they, you know, looked at absorption peaks of hydrogen. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So I was like, I'm not too sure about the timeline, but I think spectrometry is quite a bit older than that. I know, but we're using mass spec. This is mass spectrometry where we accelerate an atom in a magnetic field and see how it deflects based on its mass, right? Because if you, it's similar to um, particle accelerator. If I were to zoom an atom, at high speed through a magnetic field, through a curved magnetic field or a curved space, it will deflect, right? And the lighter it is, the more it will deflect. Right. Right? Okay. So this is what mass spec does. It just separates out your your atoms by mass by seeing how much it deflects. And then you have detectors at different positions that can detect different masses and therefore isotopes. Okay. I mean, the weird thing about it is that the concept of it is so straightforward. Yes. But I just the idea of the amount of work, like how many layers of science you have to go through before you arrive at this at this result, right? Or at this like device that allows you to or technique maybe is, is the word that allows you to measure these things is like Right. You need to know your elemental crazy. physics. You yeah. need to know your basic chemistry. You need to know physiology. You need to know ecology. And so yeah, it is. I mean, I enjoy it partly because it is this wonderfully interdisciplinary sort of form of inquiry. I mean, I'm going to hijack this and <laughs> because there was actually a similar conversation that happened at open office hours for, for the class that I'm taking, which is Intro to Computer Systems, which I mentioned is is known to be a lot of work, not necessarily a lot of work in the same way that algorithms is a lot of work, right? Okay, how about not necessarily a difficult class in the same way that algorithms is a difficult class, right? Algorithms is difficult partially because of structure, partially because it's always a challenging topic. Or maybe, I wouldn't say challenging per se, but it's it's a way of thinking that is very peculiar to computer science. And so if you have not had exposure to it, or if the algorithms class is like your first kind of exposure to it, then of course it's going to be challenging. But intro to computer systems is challenging because you have to go through so many layers of abstraction, right? And I think for most users, you go through so many layers of abstraction that normally you don't have to think about. And the reason why they are abstracted away, for the most part, is because they are freaking tedious. Right. No, right? I mean, as most sort of 
elemental things are. Elemental not in the chemistry sense, but in the, you know, complexity sense. It's trivial and tedious. Yeah, I mean, that's also partly why... I'm Okay, I, I'm being somewhat facetious, right? In the sense that, obviously, the thing about abstraction, like why it's beneficial is that as you go up the levels of abstraction, right, you can stop worrying about implementation details, right? Or you can stop worrying about the... Okay, I think implementation details is really the only way to talk about it. But I think this is kind of like the kind of classic way, right, that you try and explain, I guess, to an interested layperson is when we say that computers run on ones and zeros, like what does that mean? So even ones and zeros are abstractions because if you have an electrical engineering background, right, then ones and zeros is a CS term, right? Or it's a it comes from mathematics. When you are looking at the circuits, right, I mean, very rarely do you have like a true zero voltage, right? No, um, <laughs> and when you say a one, that one is not a one, it's an actual voltage, like three volts, five volts, nine volts, 12 volts, whatever. And you can have voltages in between those values. Oh, for sure, yeah. Right? Yeah. It's just that when you make that jump from electrical engineering across to computer science, you say like, less than this amount is a zero. This amount to that amount is an illegal state. Yes. And then <laughs> above this amount is a one. Reality right? failure. Sorry. Yeah. I, I mean, the <laughs> part of why like things like electrical storms, whatever, you know, like screw up computers is because it has the potential to force your electrical equipment into illegal states, right? And then in our class, we didn't, we kind of like skimmed over this part, right? But if you're an electrical engineer, like you're like, oh my God, this is, <laughs> this is, it's work to ensure that these points in your circuit remain in these legal states. Yeah. Right? If you're but, anywhere remotely hardware adjacent, correct, Correct. And so, <laughs> from a computer science point of view, right, we've already abstracted away a chunk of things before we get to the ones and zeros. <laughs> right? And so, the first lecture was like, okay, then what do you, what's ones and zeros, binary computation and all that kind of stuff. Then after that, you move on to like, transistors. How does a MOSFET transistor work? Right? Or, I mean, MOSFET is a, there is a term for it, but it's like, because the T in MOSFET is transistor, how does a MOSFET work, right? Which, I mean, I was like, I had a moment when I was like, oh my God, I have to go back, crash course chemistry. <laughs> and, um, and kind of like revise that stuff. Then they're like, okay, here's a circuit, draw out the MOSFETs, and then draw out like, you know, you have two input lines, you have that output line, when the input lines are like this, what does that do? Okay, now implement a three-input NAND gate. Oh boy. With transistors. jeez, oh, yikes. Right? And yeah. I mean, I'm like... When was the last time we touched logic gates in school? Uh, secondary three or four? I think four. so, right? It's, secondary it's been four. a long time. Yeah, I think it's secondary four, so it's... Uh, yeah. At least for me, because I didn't do physics. Neither did you, so... I didn't do... Yeah, later on, yeah. I so, certainly did not do physics. I mean, the thing about logic gates is that that's actually already a high-ish level of abstraction. Right. But here is about how do you build up the logic gates 
right out of transistors. Then you have the building things that start to resemble circuits that do things out of logic gates, right? So you have the half adder, the full adder, you have a mux, which... The black adder, know, sorry. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> right, you have a decoder, muxes, and then after that, you move from there up to... Uh, we had like combinational logic and then sequential logic. Oh, Jesus right? Christ. It's already com- way above my head already. Right. So way combinational logic is much more akin to what we did when we were in secondary school with logic gates, right? With truth tables. Like this is a, a circuit made out of logic gates. Here are the inputs. Here are the outputs. And on right out, and yeah. Right out truth table. Sequential logic is when the outputs feed back in. To the oh, input. no. Right. For loops. No, it's not. I mean, it's not. <laughs> if for loops is a way higher level of extraction. I know, right? I when know, you think about it. Yep. So what this does, it means that now you have state because the inputs and outputs are different based on the existing state of your circuit. That's why you have sequential logic because now the sequence of operations matters. Right. And I mean, this is relating to in the world of software engineering, we also talk about functional languages and managing states. Or we talk about like pure functions and stateless, I don't know if I would say like stateless paradigms, maybe is the word that I'm thinking of. Right. So if you have a functional language or if you are operating in a functional paradigm, the idea is that your output is determined 100% solely by your input. Right. And when you have a stateful paradigm, right? That means that somewhere in your application, you are storing some form of state. And this happens all throughout. Like for example, when you look at your computer desktop, you have a mouse, right? A cursor rather. The position of that cursor, that is state, right? Whereas the function that spits out the new position of the cursor, that could be a pure function because it takes an X and Y and it spits out an X and it takes an X and Y in a direction and a acceleration or whatever, it spits it out a result. So that function that does the calculation, that's a pure function. But the state has to be stored somewhere, right? And sequential logic, therefore, is how you get memory. Yes. Holy right? shit. Okay, yeah, right, 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 right. Okay. That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then it becomes like now, these are these components that are used in sequential logic. And then this is how you build memory. And then this is how you put together a CPU and a processor. Yeah, and now we are finally getting to ISAs, instruction set architecture, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I haven't finished the lectures. <laughs> and supposedly, and I, the truth tables, I wouldn't say truth tables necessarily, but the tables are getting larger and larger, as you can imagine. And apparently this week, there is a massive table that takes like hours to fill out because now you are keeping track of all the inputs and all the states, right? So now you have a state of, okay, at this step in the program, what are all the... You're like a human debugger is essentially what it's come to. A human debugger doing all the calculations, doing, saying like at register one, this is the value that's stored in memory at register 2. That's the value that's stored in memory. And I have to say, it's for me, it's too low of a level of abstraction to enjoy. No, I mean, yeah, right. Because it becomes, it is 
I mean, as you said earlier, bloody fucking tedious. Yes. <laughs> it is a pain in the ass to have yeah. to. Which is why I feel like stable isotopes, I don't get that sense. Even though you are really drilling back to literally the elements of it. Um, but somehow it's the way it's everything draws together from first principles is so beautifully elegant. Yeah. Okay, I mean, let me put it this way. If you didn't have to do all those calculations by yeah. hand, yeah. I think I would be fine, right? Because it is kind of, there is the mind-blowing element to it. Like, for example, when we talk about sequential logic is where the notion of a computer clock comes in, right? Because now you need a way to keep track of cycles, right? Of like, okay. Yeah, I mean, sequential, right? Yeah, yeah, It yeah. is sequential, yeah. And you need a way to say, hold this value, release this value. That's essentially what it means when you say like a clock speed of a computer, right? Like you literally accelerate the rate at which the computer says, okay, I'm going to hold on to this value. I'm going to release this value and so on and so forth. And during the open office hours, that um, one of my classmates, he basically expressed great amazement, <laughs> right? At how at such small scales we can actually build these things that when you put them together, they just somehow, it's like, it's like when you would think, right? That as you go up the levels of abstraction, there is more and more slack in the system. And then that constrains how much you can build, right? But the notion of abstraction, right? Ideally, a good layer of abstraction is one that is as tight as possible. The less you can think about what's below that layer, the better, right? And there is this Joel Spolsky classic, which is the law of leaky abstractions, which I'm sure we've talked about before. We most certainly have, yes. Yeah, which basically says any non-trivial abstraction is leaky, right? You can never fully insulate yourself from what is underneath that layer of abstraction, which goes back to when you have a thunderstorm, <laughs> right? Yeah, crap stops working because at some point you cannot fully protect the circuits from maintaining the abstraction that they are trying to uphold, right? As with all metaphors, right? It breaks down once you hit edge, you know, edge circumstances that the, the, the abstraction is like count for. Yeah. Yeah, Perfectly correct. beautiful, yeah. But I think like, it's a perfectly valid source of amazement that when you think about a transistor, which a physical transistor that you, you know, if you buy a hobby kit and you get a transistor, like that is, it's small enough as it is, but that is something that you can see and touch, right? But the transistors on an integrated circuit that are on your CPU, right? like the channels on those things are, when you, about, when you talk about TSMC's, scale. yeah, when you talk about TSMC's five nanometer processors, exactly, yes, <laughs> right. Blessed are the chip makers, right? <laughs> and not not just that. Blessed are the chip designers because how much work goes into designing an integrated circuit? My God. And I think this is the other part that is really mind blowing about the work that Apple has been doing on its chips. When you think about the expertise that exists at Intel. And the fact that Apple is outpacing them by this distance, and not just Apple, right? But the fact that, okay, Apple can design all the five nanometer processors at once, but if TSMC cannot produce them, 
it's irrelevant, right? And the processes by which these nanoscale, ever finer nanoscale processes are being developed is remarkable. It's optical lithography, which in itself is amazing. You're using light and light-sensitive thermal materials to etch light-sensitive thermal materials to create these super fine channels, which is like, holy cow! And you I know, mean, speaking of an entire layer of abstraction that exists below the computer science layer, so there is an interesting discussion that came up, I think, with the M1 MacBooks, right? Because I think the 13-inch MacBook, they talk about having, don't remember the details, but there was a discussion about chip bidding. Don't know okay. if you've you heard not, this one. I'm not familiar with this term. But because, okay. yeah, so I guess the question is, they're talking about since both the MacBook and MacBook Pro have the M1 chip, what makes the MacBook Pro chip better? I think that's what it was. Can go dig into it later. but And I think the answer is that they bin their chips, right? So there is a QC process, a quality control process, that basically says these chips are the best that came out of our manufacturing and these chips are acceptable. And what distinguishes those chips? Because they came out of the same fabrication line, right? And then somebody at the end says, this one passes, this one doesn't pass, this one passes, or this one is completely not not viable at all. So what differentiates those is that the physical manufacturing of those chips, sometimes they are within tighter tolerances and sometimes they are not. And that constrains the quality of the... Okay, not the quality of the computation, but the speed, right? at which you can perform this com- these computations. We are coming up against very real physical limits to chip manufacturing, which is insane. So the weird thing, in a sense, is when you talk about the difference between computer engineering and computer science, computer engineering is going down and down and down in the physical limits direction, right? And computer science is going kind of, I wouldn't say necessarily in the other direction, but it's going away from hardware. So, and then now this comes to something else that I wanted to talk about because the program that I'm in is primarily a CS program. The name is terrible. I believe I've said this before. Master of Computer and Information Technology, which makes it sound like, what is a Master of Computer? (laughs) Oh yes, Computer and Information Technology, which (laughs) then I think falls into that trap of what is CS and what is IT, right? Because for some people, okay, I think the part of the problem is that IT as a discipline is very ambiguous and nebulous. And it means a lot of different things in different places, but that's a separate discussion. And I thought there was an interesting debate that I saw on Reddit. Basically, somebody saying like, I read on, I think the Reddit was, the subreddit was CS Career Questions. And it was, I read on here about how CS degrees are useless and they don't help you in software development jobs at all and blah, blah, blah. But actually, I feel like I learned a lot. And my course, we went through like state-of-the-art kind of like technologies and practices. And we were taught about things like CICD, which is continuous integration, continuous deployment, and things like that. And then the responses are like, oh, what school did you go to? Which I don't think I saw an answer. And then there was one comment, which was, was your program a CS program or a software engineering program, right? And I think it is, 
hard to appreciate from the outside what the differences are. Because, okay, for sure, software engineering is, I wouldn't even think of it as a sub-discipline, computer science. It's an overlap, for sure, right? Yeah. yeah. Because there is a skill set that both have to share. But software engineering exists at a much higher level of abstraction over computer science. And the only overlap, in my opinion at least, is the programming portion. Okay, maybe I wouldn't say only, but the most significant overlap is the programming part of it. Right. And why that is, is because if you look at what is covered in CS, right, it's your typical... Of course, you have an introduction to programming kind of course, right? Where you actually go through the mechanics of how do you write code. But then you have discrete math. I'm just reading off my own core courses, right? (laughs) Discrete math, computer systems, systems programming, algorithms, data structures. And then once you move past that point, you have your typical DS, machine learning, AI type courses, right? Optimization, big data. You might have like, something security-related, cybersecurity, which is another interesting discussion, but I don't think we have time to get into it. No, Um, yeah. Yeah. Because of the fact that you have a... (laughs) There is the CS and mathy side of cybersecurity, but in practice, so much security is really the human factor, which is a different discussion, right? And I think software engineering has that quality as well, which is that in your day-to-day work as a software engineer, you're not dealing with algorithms all that directly for the most part. You definitely do data structures, but you're not implementing data structures, which is what a lot of data structures courses do. It's much more about you are choosing or you're selecting data structures, which of course necessitates that you know what they are and you know how they are implemented and therefore what's good and bad about each data structure, right? But, you're not doing a lot of the homework that you do in a data structures class, which is implement. I'm just going to hate on linked lists for a moment because that's (laughs) the kind of classic, you know, implement a doubly linked list, right? Or implement a queue or implement a structure that behaves like a binary search tree or something like that. Because of course you have to know what those things are, but when you are, working as a software engineer, usually those structures exist in libraries and you just use them. Then on top of that, there is the additional layer of how do you write software such that it is maintainable and extensible and ideally that other people can also work on. And now you are in a (laughs) zone of this is a craft and not a science. Correct. Yeah, that's where the aesthetics comes in, right? The, not just aesthetics, but the, yeah. Yeah, and so like on a very practical level, and this is also, I mean, if you're talking about not knowing the abstractions, right? Or, or ignoring the abstractions. Ideally, what ignoring the abstractions lets you do is, okay, so okay, this is something else about, for example, like compilers, right? Compilers that are optimized a certain way Right, they may look at a poorly written piece of code and a well-written piece of code and they'll just be like, functionally, these two things do the same thing. I'm just going to compile them to the same result. right? And so 
from the performance point of view, there is no difference. Of course, unless you know the Kabbalah inside and out, you don't necessarily know this detail, right? But let's say the Kabbalah is naive and it doesn't try and optimize your code. Then you might have an argument to make of, okay, I have this code that is called golf, right? So I don't know if you've heard this concept of code golf. No, no okay. not familiar to me. I believe it started with Pearl. But Dear it, God, Pearl. Okay, yes. But it's extended to many different programming communities. I've written Pearl all of once and okay. what the fuck? <laughs> okay. I mean, the thing about the idea of code golf, right, is that for people who are intimately familiar with the inner workings of a language, you can often write code that is very short to accomplish what you want. And this can be done in a variety of ways. For example, you know, if you're very skilled with the language and if your algorithm allows for it, right, you might want to do like bitwise operations. You might do the, one of the worst cases that I saw. There was, in, there was a problem on Code Wars. So on Code Wars, Code Wars is like lead code, but friendlier. The problems are called katas because they are kind of taking from the Japanese system of... We discussed know, this a while ago. Yeah, yeah exactly. So there was one JavaScript problem that basically said, write a function that does this. I believe it was something like a reducer function. A reducer function meaning you take two inputs. Okay, you have a current state, you have a new input, and then you integrate that new input into a new state. That's kind of what a reducer function does. I mean, that may not make a ton of sense. Just take my word for it. Okay. That detail is not especially important. So it's basically like implement a reducer function within like 56 characters or something like that. Oh, jeez. 56 characters. Yeah. And the, I wouldn't even say the naive implementation, right? It's the common sense implementation comes out to be about like 60, 70 characters. And then like a whole chunk of the exercise is just whittling down the characters and you, you don't get to the final result unless you perform, I believe, I want to say like an eval which is you take a string and then you execute it as code, right? So this is very good as an exercise, but nobody does that to save like 12 characters. Never. Yeah. Never. Right. Because what is the benefit you gain out of saving 12 characters? There's no meaningful benefit, right? So this is in, it's a kata. It's an exercise. 12 bits? <laughs> it's not, you're not saving bits. The problem is you're not saving bits because gets interpreted, right? And so there is probably no meaningful difference in the runtime. But even if there were, even if you had two pieces of code where one was slightly slower, we're talking like maybe milliseconds slower, right? And you're not doing it on a massive scale. And even if you were doing it on a massive scale, right? What is your net benefit, right? I mean, fundamentally, what is your net benefit from from optimizing to that level of granularity? Because the problem is there is an additional very real cost, which is programmer time. It's your own time, right? Trying to optimize, in quotes, this code to be more concise, shall we say. And I mean concise in the best way possible, where you say like, okay, maybe we don't need to loop over this twice. Maybe we only need to do it once, 
right? So actually, the reducer is a good example of this. So for example, okay, let's say you want to you want to perform two different reducer functions on the same array. You have one array, and you want to do two sets of calculations. Okay, you might iterate over the array twice. You iterate once get one result, iterate twice, get the second result. Which is how I would do it. Right? <laughs> you can make an argument that that's inefficient. Let's iterate once, okay? But we take the input... nest the function within. You right? don't nest it. You do the reducer once, but your reducer function takes a tuple and spits out a tuple. Right, okay. okay. That's possible, uh-huh. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. The problem with that is because... Every programmer who has this problem, their naive implementation is to loop twice. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Somebody who comes and looks at your code, right, they expect to see it twice, knowing that it's inefficient. Now, if they look at this loop that does it once, but seems to take a tuple for no good reason and spits out a tuple for no good reason, now they're like, okay, now I have to read this to figure out what it does. And now you have wasted somebody else's time. Yeah. And you know what? Five minutes of your time to optimize and five minutes of the reader's time to understand what you just did. Not a meaningful savings over (laughs) making a computer loop through it twice. Even if your code is extensively commented and annotated. Ideally, I mean, ideally you wouldn't, even if, look, if your code needs to be commented, there are legitimate reasons to comment, right? But if it's commented so that other people can understand it, as opposed to it's commented because it's commented for a to-do, for example, right? Or it's commented as a warning. Or I, I mean, I'm not militant about making sure that your code is self-commenting or self... Well, my professors were, and so, you know... <laughs> I mean, I think this definitely varies by, right, by your, context. Yeah, fair. Right. Okay. Because I think you can imagine that in a, there are some work environments that are going to be like, comment your stuff, right? And then there are other work environments that will be like, there are so many useless comments strewn all over this. True. Um, I think in science it's because it's uh, for reproducibility. Right. Right. Because you need to, you need to annotate your thought process so that if someone wants to write something from scratch again, they know that there's a thought process they can replicate even if they don't use the exact same code. I think if you're thinking about the point of view of efficiency, there is an argument to be made that for a code base that everybody is working on all the time, right? You want your code to be clear enough that you're not reliant on comments to explain it, which is an aspiration and not always possible. But definitely if a fellow programmer can look at this and say, I, okay, I recognize this pattern, I understand what you're doing, as opposed to needing to comment it. So I think it's a worthy aspiration to say, I'm going to try and write in such a way that it needs as few comments as possible. Because that's a sign that I'm keeping to some kind of discipline, right? But yeah, the potential optimization is essentially meaningless, right? And you will know if you're operating in an environment that has such tight constraints, like you're operating in a memory-limited environment and you absolutely have to squeeze out like everything that's non-essential. But yeah, that's a, that's a different conversation. And anyway, I think I'm done with my soapbox. 
<laughs> and anyway, we are coming up on on time, so I'm just glad I managed to talk about stabilized loops because it's such a. I mean, it's fresh in my mind. I'm in the middle of this course right now. It is super cool, and also because I managed to bring back specimens from Singapore to the US. We're going to be analyzing the stabilized loop compositions of the feathers in the birds that I brought back, which is like interesting. Okay. Wow! And so the reason why I'm in the office on a Saturday at 7am in the morning, partly because of this recording, is also because I'm running an experiment. Well, not experiment, but for the stabilized slope analysis, right? Remember, you're incorporating isotopes into specific tissue types, right? And different tissue types will have different isotopic incorporation ratios. Okay, you have one minute to wrap up. Yes. So, uh, for example, if I'm looking at hydrogen isotopes, I don't want to be looking at fat. Because fat is a long-term tissue and it incorporates uh, hydrogen sources from a bunch of places. So I need to get rid of fat. So essentially, I'm, I'm doing a bunch of insect stabilized analyses now. So I have to soak the insect in chloroform methanol to extract the fat out. And I have to do this like four times over, over four days. Right, okay, I see. Which is why I'm in the lab today. I have to change out the chloroform methanol and then add fresh chloroform methanol so it does another extraction. And then by Monday... Or Tuesday, it should be done. Right. Fun times. Done in the sense that now you can perform your experiment. Now I can liquid nitrogen and grind the insect into powder and then I can do destabilized measurements from that powder. I see. Okay, anyway, it's uh, monkeymind.xyz slash 029 for the show notes. And we will see you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>